God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yes. <laughs> oh, my. Um, when I was talking earlier about... Uh, uh, that third step, the, our membership ought to include all who suffer from alcoholism. One of the issues that comes up in, in some areas is what do you do with people who have more than one addiction? Maybe that hasn't hit Nevada yet. Uh, and, and in some fellowships, this gets real ugly. People get real crazy over it. And my solution is this. <laughs> If alcoholism is one of the problems, they are most welcome to be there. And if they're not alcoholics, they can't join us. I mean, it just, you got to be an alcoholic to join AA. Well, uh, what kind of sense does that make? Um, let me see if I can find this wonderful section in here. This is from the big book, and it's on page 175 for those of you who need pages. Um, and it is uh, from the story of Dr. Bob Smith. You heard of him? He says, During the next two years, I developed two distinct phobias. One was the fear of not sleeping. Anyone relate to that? <laughs> Terrifying. And the other was the fear of running out of liquor. Not being a man of means... I knew that if I did not stay sober enough to earn money, I would run out of liquor. Most of the time, therefore, I did not take the morning drink which I craved so badly, but instead would fill up on large doses of sedatives to quiet the jitters. Dr. Bob was a junkie. <laughs> Which, he goes on to say, the jitters which distressed me seriously. Occasionally, I would yield to the morning craving, but if I did, I would be, it would only be a few hours before I would be quite unfit for work. This would lessen my chances of smuggling some home that evening, which in turn would mean a night of futile tossing around in bed, followed by a morning of unbearable jitters. During the subsequent 15 years, I had sense enough never to go to the hospital if I'd been drinking. You know, but he just smacked away on those pills. Um, there are some people in my part of the world who would not let him join the fellowship. <clears throat> and I think it's important to read the book for circumstances like that. Okay. That's my opinion, but I'm right. Um, what else? Um, well, I, I want one thing that I just thought was funny. I want to use as a throwaway line because I think it, it is something I would like to repeat. There was a, a, one of the, a celebrity in, in Los Angeles used to talk about uh, uh, the three stages of his drinking, um, and this happened usually in the course of an evening. He'd go from stage one to stage two to stage three. And he said, in stage one, I was witty. Stage two, I was invisible. And stage three, I was bulletproof. <laughs> I like that. Okay. 
um, spiritual, all that spiritual growth, what's it look like? Well, I think we have two models that we use a lot for spiritual growth. I mean, we, we think of it and we use what we're familiar with. One of them is spiritual growth is like a rocket. Higher, 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 faster, faster, faster. Direct line up. Boom. See? Um, I don't think it's true. I don't think it works like that. Other model. Spiritual growth as the Dow Jones Industrial Index. Up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And up and down you know, but, and that doesn't work for me either. Um, but that's a model a lot of people use. The one that makes sense to me was kind of put together by a, a Jesuit, as a matter of fact, named Teilhard de Chardin. And what Chardin, he was an anthropologist and a poet and silenced by the Vatican, which indicates he had something to say. Um, <laughs> what, what he saw was spiritual growth, the growth of the person, and that's what we're talking about, the growth of the person as a spiral. And it goes around, and it goes around, and it goes up sometimes, and it goes down like this sometimes, but it keeps on going around, and you finally develop, sometimes real wide spirals, sometimes not. So this explains to me why it seems we keep coming up to the same stuff over and over and over again, because we keep visiting the place, but from a little different angle, you know? And then all of a sudden you touch it again, and you go away from it again, you might go way up, and then you touch it again. <laughs> Spiritual growth... The growth of the person is like a spiral. And that's why it's very hard to measure. And why every so often um, you hit landmarks and you notice that your world is much bigger than it used to be. Because your spiral's gotten bigger. Some of us have real narrow spirals, some of us much bigger. But it kind of goes like that. That's, I need a picture or I can't see what's happening. And that's the picture I use. Um. Not the rocket, not the Dow Jones. The second step of recovery says, uh, oh, where are you? There you are. It says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That's what it says. Now, I'd like to break that up just a little bit and talk about a few things. Number one. A lot, we talk about feelings so much in Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, and feelings are real crucial to our recovery, because most of us are so shut down when we came in, just shut down. I mean, I sure was. But notice the step doesn't say, came to feel that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. It says we came to believe. The problem with feelings is that feelings come and go. This is true in relationships, it's true in jobs, it's true in families. I mean, there are sometimes I meet somebody and I figure, I want to spend forever with this person. And five days later, I want them arrested. <laughs> feelings change. Which one's a right feeling? Well, you don't have right feelings. You just have feelings. You know? Some feelings are appropriate and some feelings are inappropriate, you know. But fe feelings aren't right or wrong. Um, and I, I, I didn't know that for a long time. This says we came to believe. And, and I want to talk a little bit, therefore, about God on this because um, it's very, very wrapped up. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I knew a lot about God. I knew a lot about God in five languages. And it didn't help. It did not keep me sober. Knowledge doesn't always help. And insight 
doesn't always help. Um, we're not, you know, like our problem is not information. A lot of times our problem is not insight, it's action. And, and my problem with God is I knew a lot, and the God I believed in was wonderful. I mean, I didn't believe in an awful, vengeful, hateful God. I believed in a, a wonderful, creative God. Um, oh, that's the God I knew about, but I just... I didn't believe that God would take care of me. I believed that God would take care of you but not me. For some reason, I concluded that God would have nothing to do with me. How did that happen? Well, when I was around uh, 9 or 10 or 11 or 12, somewhere in there, uh, I discovered the world of masturbation. And uh, it was wonderful, you know, at age 9 and 10 and 11. And I, it was my secret, you know. And what did I know about it? I know it felt wonderful, quick but wonderful. And uh, I also knew I was the only adolescent male in the North American continent who was doing this. <laughs> so it was my secret. Now, after I, after I had developed the habit, uh, which took, I think, three days, uh, I later found out that this was an awful thing. This was so awful that doing this ruined God's whole day. <laughs> and if you kept this up, you were damned. I mean, there was, there was no if, ands, or but. This was morally as significant as dropping the bomb on Hiroshima, as far as, you know, my classroom was concerned. So it got these very, very heavy messages, and at the age of 9 or 10 or 11 or 12, I mean, I was faced with some life and death stuff. And I didn't know you could talk about this with anybody, you know? Uh, secrecy is so powerful. And I therefore knew that the obsession had to be removed, and I, I, be I begged God daily for years to remove the obsession. And it didn't get removed. And I made a conclusion. And the conclusion I drew was this. Um, God cannot touch my life. Everybody else. But not me. And, and so at, I pretty much had that already set out. So I always had this sense of doom. You know, somewhere. And that it was just awful. And I was just one of those awful people. And I, when I came into alcohol, and then you know, I forgot about that decision. I mean, I don't know if I made that decision all at once or it was over a period of time, but that decision did get made. And when I got into um, sobriety, I mean, people were talking about the 12 steps of recovery, and you look at those things, and I mean, I just glazed over, right? But after a little uh, clarity, I started noticing that people uh, were doing a lot of God talk. And I, 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 I so resented God talk. Um, I didn't like being preached at, I didn't like being preached to, I didn't like being patronized, I still didn't like it. And in most churches I found that's what was going on, but here in the fellowship I didn't find that. I found people were talking about their own experiences with God. And the, what I'm very grateful for is in this step it says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And so what I decided to do was put God and the Pope and the dogmas of the church and all this stuff way back here on the back shelf. And I had better find for myself a power greater than myself. And that's what I went in search of. And I found such a power. It was a meeting in Berkeley we called Berkeley Wednesday Night. Um, not a big meeting. 
you know. I, well, it was big for us. We, we had, I guess, 40 people there on a pretty regular basis. In the city of Berkeley, we had one meeting a night. And uh, now we have more than that, so you have to make decisions. But I didn't I just showed up wherever that meeting was. I'd go, you know. And in that Berkeley Wednesday night meeting, we had real old people and real young people. We had uh, demonstrators, and we had people that beat up demonstrators. We had uh, uh, Catholics and ex-Catholics and atheists and ex-atheists and Marxists and ex-Marxists. Um, and we had Hindus, and we had, Hare, we had one Hare Krishna join us for a while. And she kind of stretched the group's tolerance. Um, and there was one, one guy in there who told her that she would stay sober if she'd stay out of airports. That's what he told her. And <laughs> we told him we didn't see that in the book. You know, it's not in the book. Doesn't mention that. So he, but he, you know, had a little bigotry problem. Um, we had married people and single people and people having relationships. You know, that gray area in between. Uh, what is your... See, I, I, the word relationship is a funny word. I think I have a relationship with everybody I stumble across. You know, from people at the Lucky Market to, uh, you know, folks I spend time with on a, reg on a regular basis. And so it's kind of... But this is like a relationship with a capital R, you know. And I think it means they're sleeping together, but I'm not sure, you know. <laughs> and I don't ask. I just fantasize. So... Uh, <laughs> and we had we had um, straight people and gay people and at one and people in between. We counted one night fourteen different sexual persuasions in the room, <laughs> and that was a small meeting. Um, it was just kind. Of, anyway, it was clear that that everybody was present there. And what was stunning in the room was the only requirement for membership was a desire to stop drinking and when you walked in the room you were accepted and loved and people didn't ask questions um, and therefore this meeting became my higher power and I emotionally felt loved there now I went to a lot of other meetings throughout the week and I secretary meeting on Friday night and stuff but what emotionally I lived for was being fed in that room by the women and men that gathered there and so for over a year, that meeting was my higher power. Then I, I kind of had to come to terms with God later on, and I, I really resented it. I didn't like uh, letting go of old ideas. I, they, they were painful, but they were familiar. Uh, and I've always chosen that painful familiarity. Well, I was sober maybe a year, year and a half, two years, and by this time I'd moved down to Los Angeles where I was teaching. And I was, um, it was the end of one semester and the start of another semester. And I had a zillion papers to correct and term papers to read, which it is, that's a slippery place, believe me. Um, I was very angry and very hungry and very lonely and very tired. And I had, the next semester was starting in days and I had all new classes to prepare and I was just crazy as a coot. So I took all of my papers and I went outside uh, to to a, one of the parks in LA and I thought, well, I would just and it was pouring rain, of course. I just in the car with the radio going, a change of scenery, get stuff done, and all of a sudden, I had this tremendous desire to get loaded. No, not drink, get loaded, and it scared me because the desire to drink, I knew pretty much how to handle that, but this one, it just came from out of left field, and it really was a monkey on the back, you know, like. 
monkey is, the reason we use that expression, I've got a monkey on it, very large arms and legs, they wrap themselves around you and you can't get them off, you see? And all of a sudden you get this off and the arm gets around and you're, the desire to get loaded, to buy some uh, non-habit flowing marijuana and smoke my brains out. That's what I wanted to do. Well, I, oh, so I started arguing with it. No, you don't want this. Yes, you do. No, you don't. Yes, you do. No, you don't. Maybe just one. You know, I'm no, no, no. And when I'm arguing with myself, I'm doomed. I, I cannot win that argument. And I got panicky, and I, so I drove to a place in Hollywood called Joe's Place, which used to be behind the, the Presbyterian Church there, I guess. And uh, walked into Joe's Place, and there was a 5 o'clock in the afternoon meeting. And I, this was like nine people at the meeting, small meeting. And there was a character standing there named Aaron. Now, Aaron is from a religious tradition which he never practiced. And he was a street different from mine. And he was a street junkie. And he was standing there you know, arrogant, and I walked in, uh, and, I, he was a, and I said, you know, talk about this at the meeting. So I, I went up to Aaron, and I said, I want to get loaded, and he said, let's go to Mexico. <laughs> and I judged him immediately. I said, this guy doesn't even know the rules. Uh, if I wanted to go to Mexico, I would have. I don't want to get loaded. That's why I'm here, and he doesn't understand that. So I, uh, and, but I, instead of saying that, I very calmly said, because my mind is talking, but then I talk. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I do, but I don't, and I'm very confused, and I'm just being torn apart, and I'm very scared. And he said, well, you've got a choice. I said, what do you mean? And he said, you can either go get loaded, or you can go to your room, get on your knees, and ask God to remove the obsession. And I said to myself, who is he <laughs> to be telling me to ask God? Thought, you know, that gong of truth, bong, rang, and I sat through the meeting completely obsessed, uh, but I knew he was right. And I was a year and a half, almost two years, well, probably a year and a half sober, almost two years. And I went back to... My, my house and went up to my room and I closed the door so no one would see and I stood by the bed and I I hadn't I had not asked God for anything yet because we've had this little you know understanding that it wouldn't work for years and I was always afraid to test it um, but this I, 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 I believe I believe prayer is communication. I do not believe prayer is telling God sweet things. I think prayer is telling God the truth. And what I needed to do was tell God some real clear things. Let's clear the air before anything else goes on. And I said, first of all, God, I want you to know that I am very disappointed in you for going to this extreme to get me on my knees. <laughs> and I let God know I was very angry at God. And I, I, ha I had thought better of God up to that moment. Uh, I thought we could have just gone along as neutrals. You know, God doing God's thing and me doing my thing and we'll work it out some other time. But this God was just breaking in and I, I really resented it. And I wanted that resentment very clear. See, my old idea of God, you know, the relationship between me and God, was this. It was like Washington, D.C. and Moscow. See, each one knows the other's there. But we'll ignore each other as long as we can until either one of us is in incredible trouble and then we'll sign a peace treaty, which we'll keep for only as long as we absolutely have to. And then, boom, it's back to normal. You know, leave me alone, be suspicious. Okay. 
Well, that was being shattered here. So I, I let God know. All right, I, I, the only reason I was doing this was because I had no other alternative. And if I had another alternative, I'd take it. Now, God, do you understand that? <laughs> and then once I was convinced God did understand that, I knelt down and asked God to remove the obsession. And it was removed. I mean, not next week. Not, not that then. And I, that terrified me. And all of a sudden, that monkey was literally taken off my back. And I, I became frightened. Because it was clear to me that the program worked. And that scared me. Because that was letting go of another old idea. And that idea was that I was someone who was doomed. And that was a familiar sweet idea. But it suddenly occurred to me after a year and a half of going to an awful lot of meetings. And talking to an awful lot of people. And not having a drink or a joint or a pill in all that time. It suddenly occurred here that maybe I'm not doomed. Slow is real. <laughs> you know? and, and it took me all of that time just to finally reach the point where just maybe I won't die drunk. Maybe. And it didn't feel good when I reached that point. It felt like I was off balance. It felt clumsy. Because all of a sudden I was changing things. And, and I don't think we change gracefully. I, if you want to be graceful, you're not going to get well. I think we change clumsily. And I think we fall down a lot. And I think that's all part of being real. When I was 12, um, my family went up to Squaw Valley. This was the last month of the Eisenhower presidency. I remember lots of things by who was president because I always had someone to blame them. <laughs> anyway, uh, last month of the Eisenhower presidency, so this was in like uh, December of 1960. And uh, we went skiing. I was 12 years old, and the skiing was very primitive in those days. They had tow ropes, and you get pulled up the slope on these ropes. And I was, 12 is not graceful to start with. You know, your, your body's weird. And um, 100,000 people had been up on this tow rope before me, so they had this thing, this rut in it of solid ice, very slippery. And I was afraid, and anyway, I got on this thing, and I held on to the rope and got yanked up this slope. It was awful. Uh, and then how do you get off? How do you get off the rope? You're in this rut. So I fell, and I fell to my side, and there were millions of people behind me who kept screaming that my parents weren't married. And uh, I remember... I remember clawing my way out of it, and several things, again, decisions we make at the age of 12. Uh, I felt humiliated, and I felt embarrassed, and I felt very clumsy. Now, I don't know about you, but those are the three worst feelings in my area. I, I think I could deal with the terminal disease a lot more calmly than I can feel with being embarrassed and humiliated. I, death first, you know. And there's a postcard that says the impossible is easier to do than the embarrassing. And I think that's true. Anything but embarrassment, dear God. So when I was 12, I made a decision that I would never ski again. Who needs that kind of treatment? See? Well, I, I held on to that decision until, I, oh, maybe 20 years after that, 
I started feeling that decision soften a little bit, and I started talking about it about a year or two ago. And about three months ago, for the first time in 25 years, I went back on a pair of skis. But this time, with a lot of Alamon and a lot of AA program, I knew a couple of things. And also, it was easier because the skis had been streamlined. I didn't feel like so clumsy. But first of all, it was clear to me, to learn, you have to fall down. Everybody falls down a lot. And what you do after you fall down is you get up. And you ask for help. And you ask people how to do it. And people will tell you. And you do it. And you fall down. And you go up and try it again. And you fall down. And you don't have to be graceful for months. Now that, I, I was black and blue. Uh, my thumbs were still sore. And I had a wonderful time because I gave myself permission to fall down a lot. In getting well, we need to give ourselves the exact same permission. We get well, some of us, I mean, we get in the program and, and we're convinced that if we're clean and sober or if we're serene, we're working on that path with 12 steps, this means I must be infallible. Not true. What it means instead is you can commit huge numbers of mistakes and talk about them. That's what recovery means. Not, I can't make a mistake. You can commit lots of And instead of being embarrassed to tears, propose it as a topic at your local discussion meeting. You know, that's what's, that's different behavior. That's growth. That's spirituality. Well, what will people say? They'll probably say you have a drinking problem. <laughs> you know, you have a couple of problems with relationships. Who doesn't? Came to believe. Now, after a while, you know, when I was sober for 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 months there, um, I was sitting at that Berkeley Wednesday night meeting and it occurred to me that not only had I not had a drink for that period of time, or a joint, or a pill, but sometime back there, the compulsion to use was lifted. And I don't remember when it was lifted. All, I suddenly became aware of the fact it was gone. And I didn't do it. And that's what I came to believe. That a power greater than myself was involved in my life. Because I saw the results. And the results were that my desire, my compulsion to fix and use had been removed. And, and I, that's when things started falling into place. You know, it took me another six months a year to pray. You know, on the knees, that old kind of fact. But it, it started falling into place. And came to believe there are times today when I feel God's presence. There are times today when I feel God's absence. And there are lots of times when I don't feel much at all. But I believe God is present in all those times. I mean, see, belief is, I, I chose to believe, and I had to choose to believe, because I could also have chosen not to believe or, or chosen not to, I had to choose to believe that God was involved in my life. Well, what if I'm wrong? Then I'm wrong. But I chose to believe it. And it says in this step, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Well, I believe. Does that mean I have it figured out? No, because it doesn't say think or understand. It says believe. Believe, an important word. Well, what's sanity? Mm. 
Well, you get people talking immediately. I'm not very sane. You see, sanity is one of those words that has a zillion meanings. And one of them is normal. Sane is normal. Um, the first therapist I saw sober, I was sober about three months. And emotionally, I was a disaster. I didn't come in in pain. I came in numb, from head to toe, numb. Because I'd been taking depressants on a daily basis for years, you know. And when you take depressants on a daily basis for years, you get a little depressed. <laughs> so I was just from head to toe, shut down. Uh, my, the first psychiatrist I ever saw, who was a Southern Baptist Freudian from North Carolina. Uh, can you imagine, you know, that guy needed to see a doctor. Uh, I mean, the topic at age 21 was, why am I so depressed? You know, well, here I am years later, you know, depressed still. Well, when the depressants are taken out of the body, it takes a little bit of time, but then you start waking up. And all of those things that uh, were depressed, all those feelings and emotions and memories start coming up. And they do not come up polite, and they do not come up neat, and they do not come up graceful. And at three months, I was a disaster. Because all fears and anger, and they weren't even differentiated. I mean, I couldn't tell you what was fear and what was anger. All I knew is I was raw, real raw, and needed to use the F word a lot. Um, especially at meetings where there were lots of Irish Catholics. I just needed to do that. So, it was, um, it was real awful, and so I went into therapy. Because I needed to have someone walk me through this. And, by the way, the book says we can. It says here on page 133, this does not mean that we disregard human health measures. God has abundantly supplied this world with fine doctors, psychologists, and practitioners of various kinds. Do not hesitate to take your health problems to such people. That's in the book. Now, you wouldn't know that from some meetings, you know, where doctors are them and they're the enemy. You know, well, uh, some of our experience with doctors and practitioners and shrinks has been we've gone to them for years in life and didn't get well, and then blame them. You know, I find if you go to a doctor and tell the truth, amazing things happen. It, it's just, and some doctors are better than others, and some really understand addictions real well because they've got them themselves. They've worked with people for years who haven't. So I went to see this character. Um, and, and after I trusted him, for, I saw him twice a week for nine months, and I, I was saying, uh, I finally said, Leonard, Leonard, do you think I'm normal? That's the big question. I mean, that is the ultimate. Am I normal? And he said to me with very wise Jewish eyes, he said, normal is 98.6, period. <laughs> and I said, excuse me? And he said, that's what normal means. I have lived my life by normal till that point, okay? Knowing either I was or how do I look normal or, or talk, what, what a normal person saying. So then I said, well, what am I trying to say? Well, what am I trying to say? Have I asked the wrong question again? And he said, I think you're trying to ask, are you healthy? And I said, okay, let's try that. You know? I, I mean, what, what does it mean to be 
a healthy person. And, and that's someone who is emotionally and psychologically sound. How do you know? How do you spot? Because I've been professionally ill for years. I mean, I, I would have sickness fantasies on a regular basis, knowing I had cancer, knowing I had leukemia, knowing I had bone disease.